Hello, and welcome to Modest Conversations. I'm here with a very old friend, Lila Jana, um, who's the CEO of Samosource and now has a new thing going on as well, um, which is super cool, and we should probably talk about it at some point. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us on Modest Conversations. My pleasure. Um, so you and I were just talking a moment ago about like what we should talk about, um, and you, you, you suggested we talk a little bit about how incredibly hard it is to be an entrepreneur. (laughs) (laughs) Basically like not punking out and quitting. Yeah. um, Which is Ben Horowitz's advice. Yeah. So tell tell me more like, like, I mean, I completely agree. Like, why is that resonant for you right now? Like what, what's going on? Like, how are you thinking about things? Like, sure. Well, I think the journey is so hard and this topic of resilience is kind of hot right now. Sheryl Sandberg just came out with her book about um, embracing option B and, uh, and the fact that I think resilience is the defining characteristic for entrepreneurs entrepreneurs that are successful. So yeah. often we think it's like creative genius or like a, a flash of insight or someone who's, you know, unnaturally gifted in some way. Yeah. That's the story that gets written later. Totally. Exactly. <laughs> That's the story. Exactly. In hindsight, it looks that way. But I think in the moment, I mean, 99.9% of, I think what drives success for an entrepreneur is just the ability to not quit when it gets really really effing hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's something, I mean, I totally agree with you. And it's something that I actually, um, think a lot about like whenever you're investing or things like that is people like actually you know is wondering like what do you invest on is it the idea da, 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 or like is it quote unquote the entrepreneur what are you looking for and honestly like for me just on your point I frequently am just like okay how emotionally stable is this person like why are they doing this because it's going when shit hits the fan mm-hmm. like do they have a reason to keep going yes and even if they have a reason to keep going are they like emotionally sound enough to get through it yes and is this something that goes beyond a job to be at the level of a personal mission? Yeah. Like, I think if you're so passionate about something that it's almost your religion, like you believe it to the core of your being and it's tied up with your identity, it can be maybe a little unhealthy at times. But I also think that's what gets you through the really rough patches. Well, And this is kind of the irony, right? Just building on that is like there's it feels like the successful entrepreneurs, there's this balance of unbalance and balance right like which is like you have to be like crazy enough yeah right yeah to be that mission driven right mm-hmm. to like be that you in some ways which takes a certain level of instability i would argue oh totally right like, like i'm like, sure that most people, of us are not mentally that healthy well, like, <laughs> stable people just don't like they're too balanced to like yeah. be able to, but but at the same time you have to be balanced in a way in another way, right, which is like the w- ability to like recenter yourself and get through mm-hmm. because, you know, you can go too far on the other extreme. Yeah. Right? And you have to be, you have to be crazy enough about the idea and the mission, but also not so crazy that you alienate people that you need to have on your team and right. funders. And so I feel like it has to come from a place ultimately of, of love yeah. and like, you know, caring about a vision and caring about people, um, but almost maniacal commitment to a vision. And it's funny, I met with the CEO of, of TomTom, mm-hmm. um, which I had always known as the the company that made those GPS devices. Yeah, yeah. Right? But actually, TomTom is now like one of the world's biggest, most powerful map databases. Sure. So they sell mapping data to like 
to Uber and to lots yes. of these companies. I had no idea. And I, I went and met the CEO in, in the Netherlands, which is open an office in, in The Hague for Samasort. And I was asking him about his journey because TomTom is now phenomenally successful. They have like the nicest office I've ever seen in Amsterdam overlooking this canal. And he's which is like, the number one measure of success. Of course, of course. obviously. <laughs> exactly. How swanky your offices are. But I'm always like, you know, I, I, I walk into these places and I, I, you know, and I ask him about his journey. And he said something fascinating. I was telling him about Samasort and we just became profitable last year. We're, we, uh, um, we're, thank you. It, it you know only took nine years, but we we're relatively small. We have we have twelve hundred agents um, who do work for us. They all come from low income backgrounds. And I was telling him, I was like, God, it took nine years. It's so long. And like it, you know, we finally hit over ten million in sales, but it like took way too long. And he looks at me and he's like, Are you kidding me? And I was like, Well, no. I mean, I'm sure your journey at TomTom Tom was totally different, right? And he's like, No. He said, The first eleven years, we never broke two million in sales. He said, me and my wife, he co-owns a business with his wife, or he co-owned it before they took it public. He said, we were just struggling for years and years. And finally, 11 years in, they pivoted and they worked on this new project. And all of a sudden, they went from 2 million in sales to 40 million. And then the next year, they went to over 100. And he said, if I had quit at any point in those first 11 years, I never would have seen the success. And it was just me kind of committed to this vision and willing to work on it and willing to like, you know, let go of other opportunities. But is that actually like, so is that, do you think that's true? I mean, this is the other thing that should be challenged <laughs> with entrepreneurship, right? Mm-hmm. Which is, again, like you talk about the stories you tell after the fact versus the stories you t- that are actually true, right? Yeah. And the rewriting of history. I mean, the other narrative there might've been like, maybe you should have changed what you were doing in the first 11 years quicker, right? Like That's what, true. Like, yeah. you know, what, yeah. So it's an interesting, I think this is like the constant and very scary balance, right? Which is yeah. like how much, um, how much is it that you're on the right course and you have to be crazy enough to stay the course through continual no's mm-hmm. and how much are you, you have to actually listen or, you know what I mean? Like, are you, should totally. you be willing to bend or change direction in what yeah. ways? Well, I think you should always be willing to bend and change direction on on a lot of the details. Like I think there's a difference between being committed to a vision and having a really strong sense of like the future world you want to create in a, in broad strokes mm-hmm. and being wedded to a very specific path to get to that vision. And yeah. I think it's about being like flexible and using data and applying like lean startup methods to figure out the particular path you want to take, yeah. but being committed deeply to that broader vision. Maybe, but again, just to push on that, because it's an interesting mm-hmm. conversation, it's like, I wouldn't say that's like the Steve Jobs narrative, right, about being willing to bend on that's certain true. things. And I think, like, there's a lot of, um, like, the lean startup thing has its place in value, but sometimes, like, when you're working on big, scary projects, you just have to, like, ignore all of that. and like That's true. And so this is an interesting, like, I'll give you an example. You know, Cortina, um, who, you know, you know, and mm-hmm. is a good friend of mine, like, my co-founder of this, he, 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 he gave this talk the other day, which I thought was awesome. But he's talking about, like, what is MVP? Now, people very frequently screw up the M, right? Um, <laughs> it's 2M. Um, I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, got, I just screwed it up. It's not that he screwed up the M. He screwed, he screwed up the V, right? His point was, I just completely butchered his point. But his point is basically that, like, it's really easy to think about, well, I guess it's related. But to think about, like, it's very easy to be like doing the right thing, but not have done it well enough. Mm-hmm. Right. And like needing to like double down on a specific thing to actually get it over the line. And so you're like, yeah. well, like we launched the MVP. It didn't work. Let's move on and do something else. Or like we launched um, this feature in this That's way. It didn't point. work. Let's move it on. But it's like, well, it didn't work because it wasn't good. It wasn't perfect. Enough. Yeah. <laughs> right? It wasn't beautiful um, enough. Yeah. And like, it's, yeah. and like it's knowing the difference is difficult. Um, yeah. Well, and it's tough because it's, it's, you know, it's so not black and white. I mean, I think with, in the Steve Jobs example, 
you know, you had him, he had wild success with the first thing he did, right? right? Like coming out these computers and like getting them sold so quickly that, you know, they couldn't even produce them fast enough. But then it took him a long time. Like when he was doing next, like there was no success for a really long time. Yeah. And then, and I feel like he, I feel like it's more random than we would like to admit sure. that like sometimes we just don't know exactly what the market is ready for. And you might have a vision and people might say, this is such bullshit. No one's ready for this. And you come out with the product and it, it you know, takes off like hotcakes or you might have something where maybe you're like three years too early and it doesn't take off. And the, the Valley is littered with these stories of great companies that were just before their time. Yeah. And then something comes along three years later and maybe they have a stronger network effect or something and they, they crush the, you right. know, well, this goes back to like, when are you willing to give up and when are you giving the back? I mean, the, the, the interesting yeah. thing about you take like jobs who I had never actually met. Um, but one, not exactly. You talk about this question about like sanity, insanity, what PC means, Santa not not known as a sane person, broadly, right? Very smart person, but like isn't like held up necessarily as you know a paradigm yeah. of balance mm-hmm. um, for most of his life, at least. Again, so the history is gets rewritten, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting because like he had an early success, which basically gave him the license to then continue to be crazy, right? Yep. And the question is, is like are like it's, in some ways it's like the, I, I actually phrase it almost as sometimes as like when should you grow up and when should you intentionally not? <laughs> Such a hard question. I mean, and I guess it's, it's a matter of a lot of personal variables as well. Like yeah. what stage are you in life and can you afford to like take 10 years before something takes off? Like, do you have the personal stability, you know, financially and emotionally to be able to weather those lows? Right. For me, like I think about Samasource and when I started, like we had this, I had this crazy idea, like, okay, let's address poverty by, by creating digital jobs in a very poor place where there are no digital jobs today. And when I approached foundations with this idea, whose mission is to fight poverty, they were like, you're crazy. Poor women in a slum in Africa are never going to be able to use a computer. Are you crazy? Like they need wells, they need bed nets, focus on those things. And I was like, I find that incredibly paternalistic and wrong and watch us. We're going to make it happen. But it took five years before we had enough evidence that we could get any major funder to really back us. And then we got like a five and a half million dollar grant and then it kind of took off. But I also had evidence along the way that the model was working in small ways. And, and I had a lot of feedback from like, like we started, I started the business with a $30,000 contract from a business that was like, fine, we'll hire you to do data entry for us. Don't, don't screw it up, you know? And, and so I did the QA myself and we made that happen. And slowly we kind of learned, oh, this is a market for data entry. So let's get more clients. And then as we grew, data entry started getting more and more commoditized and um, machines started being able to do more of the work that we were doing. Machines got in the way. Screw Yeah, exactly. The machines are going (laughs) to screw us all one day, but that's, that's for another podcast. But, um, but, you know, we started getting evidence that maybe our workers could do other types of work, and we started trying those things out. And, and so it was a lot of experimentation and a lot of throwing stuff at the wall for years. And personally, I just knew that it was my kind of calling to do this, and I was willing to do it even if I w- wasn't going to make any money for a really long time. Yeah. So now that you're profitable <clears throat> and you get to start rewriting your history and the creation story <laughs> from the yeah. start, like, what, um, like, were there moments of personal doubt along the way? Oh my God. So many. I remember my good friend who happened to be an ex-boyfriend at the time, like let me sleep on his futon for months after we'd broken up. And I was like, that that period was probably the lowest period of my life. And all my friends were working at Facebook and like, you know, Facebook was starting to become this cool company. Um, and I felt like I was like, 
the unpopular kid being homeschooled while all my friends were going to like, (laughs) you know, like the private school. And it was incredibly lonely. I was like working out of a corner of Stanford. I had a visiting scholar position and because this professor had basically taken pity on me and he was like, okay, sure. You can use this desk over here in this dusty corner of my, you know, of our center. And I was there for eight months and I, I was like so low. I mean, every day, but I would also get these reports back from the women we were employing that were like, you know, here is the school that my daughter's now able to go to because I'm earning a living for the first time in my life. Yeah. Or like, you know, these incredible stories of people being, you know, getting medical care for the first time, um, having these life changing experiences. And so even through those lows, this is why I feel like mission driven companies have an advantage, maybe for the entrepreneur and the early staff, which is that like, if you believe that what you're doing is like independently of any anything it's giving you is like creating some good in the world. It's going to outlive you. It like gives you a reason to keep going. No question. I think, (laughs) I think that's kind of the, the interesting thing about, I mean, about mission driven companies. I I think the the way you said it is, I totally agree with, which is you can talk about it in a lot of different ways, but the fundamental thing about being mission driven is it's a structural advantage, right? Totally. Um, It's like, it's actually harder to not be mission driven, right? Like (laughs) you look at like, you take like a thing, which it's harder to see the mission on, like, take a, a Goldman Sachs. I'm sure they have a wonderful mission and, like, lots of people believe it, but harder to, like, grasp onto immediately. They're just at a recruiting disadvantage because, again, you don't get those dopamine hits the same way. Um, totally. Yeah. And, like, we're able, it's funny, I, I joke that we run, like, a rehabilitation program for former investment bankers and management consultants who are really depressed about life. I used to be a management consultant. Yeah, yeah me and, too. You know, yeah, my job was to, like, help these companies get richer. And, uh, and I, no, I worked no, for a great on, firm. Let's be Usually the job was to prove things they already knew to create buy-in for them to do things they were going to do exactly. anyway. Exactly. <laughs> be used as a political tool by management. Absolutely. Um, and I was like, and I had a great, it was like great salary. I had like my, you know, corporate Amex. I was 22. I knew nothing about the world, but I like felt like I had, you know, I was like living a, a queen's lifestyle in New York. And, and yet I was so depressed and I couldn't bring my, I remember like one morning I just like couldn't bring myself to like get up and go to work. Cause I just felt so depressed that I was helping this client on a problem that wasn't even a real problem, yeah. like to make a political point for someone. Yeah. And I was like, is this what my life is going to be about? And I finally quit and I quit two months before I was supposed to get my second year bonus. So I literally left like 20 grand on the table, which at that time was like more money than I could even Good for imagine. You. I, when I, I, I left my management <laughs> consulting job to start a business, but I, made sure I did it literally to the hour that my contract expired. Much fact, smarter than fact me. Fact in incorporation documents. <laughs> from the Much smarter than me. That's what I think you should do because <laughs> you need that 20 grand to be resilient in the years that will come. But, but ultimately, like, you know, if you believe in the mission of what you're doing, it is such a blessing. And I think, like, I think... Did you ever not believe in the mission? Did you ever, like, hit an emotional point where you're like, I understand, like, I don't know. I believe it in a macro sense, but not the way I did once. To be honest, like, Watching Trump get elected, I think for all of us has been this huge wake up call. And I'm sorry to get political, but like, I, I think for me, it was like, we've all, I mean, I feel like I've been fighting so hard for these values of like inclusion, economic inclusion and, you know, diversity. And, and we had an administration before that, which in, in my view really reflected a lot of progressive ideals Mm -hmm. that had materialized now finally politically. And so for me, I did experience these like very strong moments of doubt after the election of like, what is the point of doing any of this? If like, we can just go so far backwards so quickly. Um, but now I think 
that's just weakness talking. And like, if you're really committed to making the world a better place, you have to be committed even in these moments of extreme doubt. And also I think it reflects a failure on the part of the progressive movement to enfranchise people who voted for Donald Trump because they were very justifiably angry with like the way that the democratic party was working and the way that the leader that we chose was representing the party. So, so I think it was like, now I look at it as a learning opportunity and a chance to pivot and a chance hopefully to improve like the, progressive organizations that failed us in the last election. Fair enough. <laughs> well, well said. Do you ever worry when you talk about mission, when you being a mission driven entrepreneur and, you know, understanding all the, the structural benefits that come along with it, right? Are there ever like times in your experience where you've gone too far in the other direction and you've had to pull back, right? Where like, basically you let the mission take you beyond the realm and then was like, had to, had to readjust. Totally. That's like my core problem. And and how do you know, how do you know, how did how do you recognize that in yourself and know how to correct? So I am by nature, like a yes person, like my flaw, my, like, I think my central character flaw is that I, I really want to like please people. And I also want to do good things. And I overcommit like I, I get excited about ideas. I have books of entrepreneurial ideas. I own like 85 domains. A lot of our friends are like this. Like we have ideas and we're like, oh, let's just buy that domain and make that happen. And I, I literally, I have like business plans I've written and abandoned. Yeah. And I now at least feel some kinship with other entrepreneurs because I talk a lot to people who say they do that all the time. And that's their like guilty, you know, their guilty pleasure is they like buy domain names. So, so I would say like, if you're naturally a yes person and you're mission driven, the problem that you're going to have is that you're going to want to help everyone. And I had a lot of challenges with this. Like we, when we started Sama, it was really early days. And I was like, I want to go to the hardest places in the world to create digital jobs and create them there. So we went into a refugee camp in Kenya called the Dab, which is like, quite literally like the hardest place you could ever imagine operating. Like people are like Al-Shabaab is like kidnapping NGO workers. There's zero infrastructure. Everyone's living on less than a dollar a day. It's the most desperate place I've ever seen. And I figured out a way to get there. I like had to travel with an armed convoy as part of an NGO group to get there. And I did a training in the middle of this camp. And lo and behold, we trained 16 refugees in the middle of this camp that were able to do small tasks for Microsoft Mm -hmm. and the client was really happy with their work. They were like, we can't believe these are refugees. They're doing work. That's like better than our mechanical Turk audience. And, um, and so let's hire you. And we actually couldn't get the deal off the ground because couldn't have anybody on the ground in Dadaab because people were literally getting kidnapped and I didn't want to put my staff in harm's way. And so there were definitely moments like that where I think I should have been smarter about when we did that. Now we've gone back in and we have a refugee program eight years later, but we have the resources to hire security and we have the resources to know the safe areas. And, and so the thing that helped save me from myself um, over the years is to hire people who I trust to be no people. Yeah. Who I like, I have an amazing CFO whose job is basically to say, this is a great idea. And out of these 10 great ideas you've given me, like here are the two that I think are actually plausible and like here's the data behind why i have to say no to these yeah i think the other (laughs) thing that is um i've learned that i think is similar but it took me a while to learn this is um how freeing metrics are right (laughs) which is i feel like uh, coming out of management consulting when i was like in my 20s and thinking about like starting business things i was excited about my kind of framework on the world was you get super analytical about the members you're trying to drive when you know what you're doing and you're at enough scale to like say, okay, we need this now. And it's very constraining to have a metric 
but it's very scalable, so it's mm-hmm. a good thing eventually. But I was very against in early days um, being like, okay, like constraining innovation with metrics. Yeah. But I actually think what, what slightly older Sam figured out um, and was taught, to be honest, I think also, is actually metrics are the most freeing thing in the world, right? Because if you can articulate into metrics what your objective function is, what your actual goals are almost from day one, then all of a sudden, one, with a group of people, you can be far more inclusive, right, mm-hmm. in the actual decision-making process. Because all of a sudden, as long as everyone understands the metrics and they're thinking on the same terms, you can, the there's a lot page. more freedom. So the I, I, irony is, is that even for small teams, metrics are quite freeing, not constraining. Totally. Right? And the second thing, honestly, that, that ends up happening is, is, like, all of a sudden, you can have a very rational discussion, right, about specific projects that you might love, but it just comes down to, you know, does it move the thing we care about? What's the probability that it does? How are we going to yeah. stack it against everything else? And what's interesting to me is in the last like five or six years, especially, we've seen this movement to apply that same level of rigor and those same metrics in the social sector. Like People yeah. are now becoming as hard-nosed about poverty reduction as yeah. they were about their you know investment portfolios, which is exciting to me because that same philosophy applies. Yeah, you know? I mean, it, the risk in it, obviously, is you get the metrics wrong. Yeah. Right, because, because yeah. you know, if you have a system that optimizes, I mean, the famous you know example is like the AI that wants to make more paperclips and decides to like pull a black hole over next to Earth to make more paperclips and like kills all the humans in the process, right? But like, so you have to be because metrics are so powerful. If yeah. you pick the wrong ones or pick imprecise ones, yeah. you end up creating bad stuff. Um, That's how private prisons have screwed America. Sure, yeah, it's because the metric was heads and beds and not like the rate of recidivism, which it should be, right? right? So you're absolutely right. The frame has to be correct. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. So how does that mean, going back to your cycle, it's like, I, it's so funny to hear you say I'm a yes person, uh, just because like out of context, it's a kind of a hilarious concept. Um, <laughs> like a chronic yes person. Like speak. it's such a problem for me. It's, <laughs> but it, it kind of goes back to this whole question about like what makes great entrepreneurs. Because you have to be willing to say yes to something which in general, you shouldn't say yes to, right? Which can either mm-hmm. come from some passion or you're just crazy or there's some reason you're willing to say yes in some space. But then also, like, it sounds like you know, different people can hire around them to augment this. But in the end of the day, like, startups are exercises in a ton of no's, yeah. right? So it's an interesting thing where, like, you have to be both an incredible optimist and an incredible pessimist. <laughs> I think of it as, like, the genesis has to be optimistic. And at the core, like, every company is optimism, you know, is, like, a version, you know, some kind of personified optimism. Because yeah. it it's taking something that didn't exist and willing it into existence, right? Yeah. And, and to do that, you have to have like an unflagging level of optimism for a while to recruit other people behind a vision, to recruit investors, to like get something off the ground. But then you're absolutely right. It becomes a matter of, of putting constraints on that optimism to grow a business and eventually become profitable. And once you're like looking at a PL, it's, it's a balance between, you know, optimism and constraints. Hmm. But I, I do think that the seed of every, and every entrepreneur I know is like, is optimistic to a fault in some core sort of internal sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like they see a vision of the world that doesn't exist today that, that he or she wants to materialize. Yeah. Fair enough. Interesting and fascinating problems. Anyway. I'd rather be a yes. Personally, I'd rather be a yes person than a no person. And I, I'm sure our CFO would say exactly the opposite. And so I think it takes two kinds, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it's really, I guess I'm a yes person. You're totally a yes person. <laughs> Thank you, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I'm, you have to surround yourself I, with people who like 
stop you from yourself sometimes. Yeah. Right? Although I think Cortina and I, at least in the in the context of Finn, made the very intentional decision of doing the opposite, which is both being yes to, you know, basically playing what I consider a game of, um, you know, improv, we play yes and. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. It's basically what it is, yeah. right? I mean, you yeah. either have a partner, you can either have a partner that balances you, yeah. right? Which is the general advice. The general advice that people give mm-hmm. is when you're starting a company, find people that balance you, right? Mm-hmm. And there's good reasons for that. But there's a counter um, argument or account which says that startups are crazy enough exercises. Mm-hmm. And if you're trying to do something truly different, surrounding yourself with people who say no or like who have a different frame of reference slows you down and makes you much more likely to too quickly revert to the mean. Whereas if you can find people who will say yes and with you, yeah. um, and actually if anything push you into places you're even scared of, right? Yeah. Um, you just end up in different places, right? It's like, it's like controlled amplification. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, you you do want those people who are amplifiers, but you don't want them, you want them to like hone in on the things that are actually working and say yes and on those things. Yeah. And I guess you're right in that our CFO, um, to his credit, he came from Oracle and he was like, I was like, why would you ever leave Oracle to join a nonprofit? Like I can guarantee you, you will make like basically no money here. I mean, you'll make money, but like, you know, you no equity. Right. And he's like, well, I want to take the maniacal focus on profit that I saw in Larry Ellison. I want, I want to help someone who has that same maniacal focus on impact. And I want to help them like grow a business to like where I think it can be. And he's like, I think, I think I could do that for you, Yeah, you know? And so he says no, but he, he says, he says no in a yes and way. If that so then he, then he says no and. <laughs> exactly. Well, he's or like, no but. he's like, in order to support, you know, to invest more in our core activity, I think we shouldn't do this other idea that you have, but it's only because I'm saying yes and to the, the core thing that we do, Got you know? It. And, and it's, it's, it's what you said. It's like using metrics to sort of guide us. And I, I think, so it, you're right in that it's not a it's not a shutdown, and I think if you have too many no people early on in a startup, that can like kill the optimism of the entrepreneur, which yeah. is which is also really bad. So we're giving no conclusive answers to anything on this life discussion, has, life, but that's life okay. Has no conclusive answers. It's if a very Buddhist. If there were conclusive answers, then we would have no reason to talk in the first place. That's true. <laughs> very cool. So listen, we should um, we should probably wrap this up, but tell yeah. me tell everyone about your new jam. Oh, sure. Before, so, I mean, why not, right? Yeah. So, Luxme, LXMI.com. Luxme is, um, is a new luxury brand um, that's trying to bring a vision of social and environmental impact to the luxury space. So, we're the first social impact brand at Sephora. We are starting in skincare because there's such an opportunity, I think, to create uh, skincare products that are amazingly effective and potent, but that also contain ingredients that are good for the world. So we, uh, we launch a product called Pure Nilotica Melt, which is a single ingredient superfood that comes from Northern Uganda. And by purchasing the product, you're creating employment for women who were widowed by a terrible civil war that happened in the Northern part of the country there. And, um, and you're also supporting a different, much more sustainable vision of, of beauty. So we launched at Sephora on QVC. We're about to launch on Ipsy and, uh, we got some amazing investors. Reed Hoffman is one of our lead investors. So I'm hoping it grows. Um, we were just called the Chanel of social impact by CNBC. And I'm just excited because I feel like all these millennials who actually care about social and environmental impact, deeply, they're now starting to have enough disposable income to purchase luxury products. Yep. And the margins in luxury are insane. Why is that margin going to the next future heiress? You know, yeah. it should go to making the world better. Totally. And that's our vision. Totally. Awesome. Well, sounds great. 
And um, I'm, I'm very excited about the idea of, you know, having skin kill products that are not petroleum based. Right? Absolutely. They're forest based. Yeah. Wild, wild plant based. As and... you can tell, I'm very deeply versed in, in this industry. <laughs> you sound so... like it. You sound like you have good skin. <laughs> we'll make sure. Oh, and they're like safe. You know, if your baby ate, ate our products, your baby would probably be even healthier. Like it's uh, and you can't say that about 99.99. Can you put that on the package? Products. Yeah. It's like eat, in case of emergency eat. Literally, like we have a recipe for truffles using our Nilotica melt on our website. I just like the idea of so. being hungry on an airplane and being like, what do I have in my bag? Might as well eat my skin. That's how I got the QVC airing. I ate the product and the QVC. Did you really? And the merchants were like, you have to do that on air. <laughs> did, did you do it on air? They wouldn't let me because of like federal trade regulations because uh, it's not like certified as a food or well, something. Well, neither is Play-Doh. People do that. That's true. Yeah. So maybe I should just sneak it in the next airing. I really like the idea of you having an entire ad campaign. Which is just like you secretly eating the food. It's like you're, you know, like the whole thing is like, oh, you're putting on your face. Yeah. Just eat a little bit. Just like eat a little bit in the. Pl- I like that idea. Like the plain food is really bad. And or does you become like a rogue, rogue skincare product eater? Where like everything you do, you're like, you can't eat it. And you're like, yes, I can. And you just, at the end, you're just like eating it. I like that. I'm gonna do it on air. I really wouldn't do Thanks, that. That's, Sam. that's a, that. That's what might be considered a yes and. I feel. <laughs> anyway. Not a no. Not a no. Not a no. We'll get the CFO yes, to say yeah. no to it. Anyway, cheers. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much. Till the next time. (laughs)